Good morning to all of you. Last October, our church embarked on a journey to raise $777,000 in an end-of-year campaign we titled No Limits. And as of today, we have raised $550,000. We are 71% of the way there. I wanted to extend, though, however, an invitation to the many people who have gotten connected to this community ever since the beginning of this new year. I want to extend an invitation to you. If you would like to participate in this campaign, you still can. We're extending the No Limits campaign up until the end of our church's fiscal year, which is the end of June. So we're not going to put limits on giving. See what we did there? You see what I did there, right? Yeah, that was pretty clever. We're not going <laughs> to... Someone just booed me. Wow. We're not going to put limits on, maybe you should give, my friend, whoever just booed me. We're not going to put limits on the giving for, for our campaign. We also accept stock donations, any kind of estate donations, like jewelry or cars or anything like that. You think I'm joking? I ain't joking. There's a lot of people out there that have the ability to give through those means and measures. Please send me an email at luke at mercyroadnw.com or our executive pastor, Justin at mercyroad.com nw.com. We would love to help you facilitate if you are inspired. You were like, hey, I'm just, I'm new to this community since the beginning of the year. I would love to be involved in this campaign. We can share with you the breakdown of funds, how we're going to use the funds to help accelerate the growth of this local church in the kingdom at large. Well, let's, let's say just a, a very short word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to flow in and through the house of God and in your hearts as well like a mighty river bringing you to life and available for his, his word to speak to your soul. So Holy Spirit, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, would you like the sun giving us new energy today? Would your son Jesus melt the, the exterior walls that we've built around our hearts to protect ourselves from you and from each other? So Holy Spirit, flow like a mighty river this morning. May your word speak clearly. May it convict us. May it strike at our hearts. Oh God, we love you. And we invite you to this place, and we are thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we say thanks to the worship team this morning for giving us uh, leadership in that beautiful time of worship? Okay, so I'd like to ask the room this morning, if you are here and you are married, and you have been married longer than one month, would you just raise your hand? Okay, that's a good selection of people. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Can I ask you something? Before you got married, did you have certain expectations of your wedding night? I did. Like most people did. And this is not a moral high horse statement, but my wife and I did wait until we were married. We were both virgins on our wedding night. And I would highly recommend that to anybody who is, has, who is a virgin and is wanting to hold on to that very sacred piece of your journey. But that's not the point of this morning's sermon. The point is, is that I had expectations of that night. Now, apart from the obvious of those expectations being generally met, like any 26-year-old man thinks about a couple of things in life. They think about their career and their honeymoon night. They think about those two things. And on that night, I realized that I also had the expectation that my wife and I would cuddle. By show of hands, who in this room, if you have been married longer than a month, who in this room is the small spoon? I got one confession here from the camera operator. 
One more over here. Now, who in the room is the big spoon? Jason, just Jason and Chris. Jason and Chris are the big spoons. Okay, I thought, I thought that I was gonna be the big spoon. Now, the first night and the first month and the first year, I got to be the big spoon, but what I discovered very early on in our honeymoon week is that my wife would totally accommodate the big spoon, but only until she wanted to go to sleep. And then when she wanted to go to sleep, I got her permission to share like 50% of this, so we're good. (laughs) But when she wanted to go to sleep, she would wrap herself up in a cocoon, and I would be left out in the cold, (laughs) just a couple inches from my wife, whom I loved, who I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with. And I was left there in the cold, and now she's like, oh, oh, sorry, honey. Sorry, honey. I, I, will, I will buy you your own blanket and quilt. <laughs> so the solution was to not share the cocoon. The solution is to have my own blanket and quilt, okay? And now, 12 years into our marriage, it turns out that that was the right call, because now we have our two blankets and our two quilts, and I still get to be the big spoon from time to time, but the reality is, is that my expectations did not match the reality of where my marriage was going. If you are dating, if you are engaged, if you are married, you carry with you a set of expectations, You are carrying with yourself a set of expectations on how that honeymoon will go, how that first decade of marriage will go, and often those expectations go unmet, and you find out that the reality is something very different from what you had imagined in fantasy. I hoped to share a blanket and a quilt. The reality is that we have separate blankets and quilts. And I like my cocoon now too. (laughs) And it's all good. But the first couple of months of, of my marriage in 2012 came with the conflict of sharing two blankets and sharing two quilts. Because conflict is inevitable. It is absolutely, completely, and entirely a natural process that comes in relationships. Conflict is inevitable. Now, conflict in the bedroom, conflict with your budget, conflict with conflicting belief systems, whatever your brand and flavor of conflict is, it is inevitable. And if you have been married for longer than a month, you know that this is true. But our hope and prayer is that over the course of this month, February, annually as a church, we take February and we focus on relationships and some aspect of relationships. And this month and this year, we're going to be focusing on specifically conflict and conflict resolution. Because conflict is inevitable. Conflict resolution is not. It is the engaged couple, the married couple, the dating couple that doesn't resolve their conflict, that they slowly drift apart. There's only a couple institutions that God has offered humanity to help humanity become more like Christ. And one of the primary mechanisms that God chooses is that of the marriage institution. It is not an antiquated idea. 
Just because the world does not value it does not mean God does not value it. He values it deeply. Luke, I'm, I'm single. What does this have to do with me? You are single, which means your exclusive relationship right now is with the living God. But there could be a day that you're not single. There could be a day that you're ministering to someone who's freshly dating or engaged or married. Just because you're single does not mean you are exempt from understanding what the word of God teaches and speaks and says about conflict and conflict resolution in the complexity of relationships. I want you to have 99 problems and your marriage not be one of them. And I think that you want that deep down too. Because there is nothing more straining than a relationship that has regular conflict in it. But there is nothing more life-giving when that relationship is healthy and strong. It's as if the world could be falling apart around you and somehow you've got the anchor strength of that relationship that is not strained. So my invitation to you, friend, is that over this next month that your heart would be opened that the son of Jesus, the son of God rather, would melt away those walls that you have placed around your heart to protect you from the ways you've been hurt in the past by a previous relationship or by something a pastor said at a church that was well-meaning but, but thoughtless. My invitation to you rather is to explore with the Holy Spirit what it could look like to pursue conflict resolution in your dating, engaged, or married relationship. In the word of God, we have an example in Abram and Sarai where God is showing them their future. He's showing them and speaking the future that they have for their lives. And God is vocal and he is audible in this time in history. And he's sharing with Abram and Sarai their future. But Abram and Sarai do not want to wait for their future. And so we'll see as the story develops that Abram and Sarah make a massive series of errors along the way. And my hope and prayer is that we, with the Holy Spirit's help, would gain the kind of wisdom to look into God's word and say, sometimes there are people and situations in God's word that we want to reflect. And then there are other times that in God's word, there are certain persons and scenarios that we want to avoid. <laughs> Abram and Sarah's story is something I would encourage you to avoid. Because we will see here the immense complexity and stress that they invite into their lives. So you can please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 16. It'll also be on the monitors to my right and left. You can also power on the device that you are using this morning. If you've downloaded our app, our, the Bible is also on our church app. This is what the living word of God says this morning, church family. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. This is already starting to sound really, really backwards and upside down. Some ancient Jerry Springer stuff here, fam. Verse 4, he slept with Hagar. 
and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. There's an inference there in the second quote, verse 6. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. A little historical and, and cultural context will help our minds wrap around the unusual story of Abram and Sarai. Abraham taking Hagar as his wife was completely and entirely legal to the marriage code of that day. But just because something is legal does not make it moral. God never ratifies immorality. We see throughout the word of God these examples of this immense moral corruption, precedent for what it's like to be human. But never does God put his stamp of approval on it. Just because something was legal then, just because something is legal now, does not mean God ratifies it as moral and good and full of his goodness and truth. He, he does not normalize what humanity normalizes. But nor is he threatened by what humanity normalizes. Abram and Sarai made a huge error right at the beginning of this story. What was it? What was Abram and Sarai's error? I believe that it was not their intense desire for children, as the word makes clear. I believe that it was not a lack of trying. And perhaps the sensitivity of this subject brings pain up in your soul and spirit right now because you have spent your adult life trying to have children as well. And so this is a little too close for him. And so as you read this story, and as you hear this story, instead of seeing what God is going to do to develop his goodness as a result of Abram and Sarai, right now you're reflecting on how much you resonate with Abram and Sarai. It was not their intense desire for children. It, that wasn't their error. It was not for a lack of trying. That was not their error. Their error was taking matters into their own hands. Their error, their first error in a series of consequential, colossal mistakes was that they began to take matters into their own hands. Now, we've all done this. And yours truly has done this for reals. About a month or two ago, I was at home on the weekend and I was agitated by my dishwasher having all this iron buildup. Does anyone else have iron buildup in their dishwasher? I'm just so annoyed by that. You would think that like the inside of a dishwasher would be clean, cleaning your dishes. I don't know why that bothers me so much, but it does. So you know what I did? I went out and bought those little pod deals that are supposed to clean the inside of your dishwasher. I put a couple in there. You're only supposed to put one. Put a couple in there. Those things are a scam. 
It didn't clean my dishwasher at all. I don't know if it's because of that's how dirty my dishwasher was or it's because those things just don't work. And so you know what I did? I thought to myself, hmm, how would the man, the king of the castle, clean the inside of his dishwasher? Well, I've got a battery-powered power washer. So you know what I did? I went out to the garage and I got my battery-powered 20-volt max power washer and I hooked up my hose to it and I walked it inside my living room from my back deck. Now, mind you, my wife was away. <clears throat> and my three children were kind of looking at me with no words, with this like face of, mom's not gonna like this judgmental face. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was really, really embarrassing. And I got up to the dishwasher and I was just like, I'm gonna take care of this once and for all. I'm taking matters into my own hands. I am going to clean the inside of this nasty iron built up dishwasher. So I turned it on high and I began to spray the inside of that dishwasher. And I was so proud of myself and, and it got it quite a bit cleaner. And then I looked down on the floor and I realized I have made a massive mess because there was water everywhere. You think I would have thought about that, right? But I didn't. I was so focused on cleaning the inside of the dishwasher, I was just narrowly focused. I must get the iron deposits out of my dishwasher. When we take matters into our own hands, we make a mess of things. Not only was the kitchen floor covered in water, we have wood floors. I didn't get it mopped up in time. Guess what happened? The grain rised in the wood floors. I just wanted the dishwasher clean. And I just had to take matters into my own hands. I want you to reflect on your life and think about all of the ways that you have been impatient, that you have taken matters into your own hands, but instead of creating a beautiful outcome, you create a colossal mess. Because you, like Abram and Sarai, because I, because you, because we, Love to take matters into our own hands, but yet it creates so much conflict. And when my wife got home, she's like, um, what did you do? I was like, I just got my power washer and power washed the inside of the dishwasher. Did not go well. <laughs> what was the conflict between Abram and Sarai? What was the conflict? Let's name this conflict. The conflict was obvious to our eyes today, it is introducing a third party into what is an exclusively two-party relationship. Specifically, the sexuality between a person and a person. God's ordination, his design was between a person and a person, a husband and a wife, this institution and God is looking at this scenario and he is not ratifying the immorality, even though it was legal to introduce Hagar. We don't even know how old she was. She very well could have been a minor, which means Abraham could have been a pedophile. And here we have Abram and Sarai longing and desiring for what they want so much, they will do anything to get it. They will take matters into their own hands, even though God had already promised them that they would have a son of their own. They did not want to wait. The sin of polygamy 
possibly pedophilia, adultery. This is no way to treat. Perhaps would have been a minor. The word slave there obviously, obviously carries an immense amount of stigma. However, in that day, it was a little bit probably more like a personal assistant, an executive function. There was a probably relationship, deep relationship between Hagar and Sarai. So Sarai completely betrays Hagar. Abram, he's like, yeah, I'll go along with that. I'm with you, Sarai. I can't wait any longer too. Let's take matters into our own hands. And let's abuse someone else to get what we want. This is the human story. Abram and Sarai are just an archetype of the human story. All of us at some point in our own stories have a moment where we said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Especially when it comes to the complexity and the nuances of romantic relationships. Look at verse 7. After Hagar fled, it says this, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. And he said, the angel said, Hagar, a slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? As if he didn't know, but he's asking these questions so she will give specific responses. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Well, sure, I would too. If I was in Hagar's shoe, I'd be like, beeline out of here. I'm being used and abused. Peace out. I'm gone. Verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Verse 12, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Church family, can I, take, can I, can I invite you to take a deep breath? Just like this, this deep breath, let it out. Pastors are not pundits by any stretch. But here, right here, the Arab-Israeli conflict that we are so accustomed to today began right here. From Ishmael came the Arab nation. From Isaac, the son that God would eventually give Abram and Sarai, came the Jewish nation. We are quite literally reading headlines on our news apps today about an ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine because of Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands. It is not the point of this morning's message. However, when we take matters into our own hands, the consequences could be incalculable, colossal. There are consequences that are a natural product of, of our desire to take matters into our own hands. I must control, I must control, I must control this outcome and that outcome and this outcome and that outcome and this person and that person. I want it too bad, I can't wait. There can be colossal consequences to that. However, we have the Holy Spirit 
who tempers human emotion, who invites us to walk with him humbly every single day. That invitation is for you, friend, for each one of us, for you in your family, for you in your singleness, for you in your dating relationship, your engaged relationship, your married relationship, your family unit. He's inviting us to experience what it means and is like to come under the authority of the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life. Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar make matters worse for themselves when they also try to resolve the conflict that they've created for themselves. Let's look at these three solutions. The first solution is Sarah's. Sarah's solution was to blame her husband and mistreat her servant. She gave vent to her anger. But yet Sarah seems to have forgotten that this was her idea. This whole program was Sarah's idea. She is the one that looked at her personal assistant and said, hmm, you're just young enough, fertile enough, attractive enough to my husband that I could build my family through you. I can use you to get what I want. Ah, the archetype of the human condition. I want it so bad I'll do anything to get it. Abraham's solution was to give in to his wife and abdicate spiritual headship in the home. He just turned over. He was a coward. Totally a coward. He should have had pity for this helpless servant girl that was now pregnant by him. And he allowed Sarai, his actual wife, to then mistreat her. And he's just like, well, can't do much about it. Totally with cowardice impulse. He doesn't do any, he could have done, he could have taken all three of them to the altar and repented and confessed and got right with the living God. And he did not do that. Hagar's solution was to run away from the problem. And frankly, if I was in Hagar's shoes, I would run away from the problem too. Except for when you are part of the problem. I have no idea. The, the story does not tell us whether or not it was rape. There was, there was no story in here. There's no nuance to say whether Hagar agreed to this or not. Perhaps if it was forced, we would hear more about this in the story. So I don't really know, and I'm not here to say whether it was forced or unforced, but the reality is, is that you cannot run away from your problems, especially when you are divinely intertwined in them. We learned this trick from Adam and Eve when they ran from God in the garden. This is what humans do. They run. They run. We run. When things get uncomfortable and there's tension in the relationship and there's tension in the workplace and there's tension with your children and there's hostility between the people that you love and trust the most, the easiest thing to do is escapism. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here as fast as I can. I got to protect myself from this horrible feeling of discomfort. Escapism. Hagar fell prey to escapism. Do you resonate with any of these this morning? Blaming, giving in, or running away? They are real human experiences. To blame others for the choices that we have made, for giving in 
instead of standing up for what is morally right. Running away from problems rather than facing them head on and addressing them and making them right. We will never always get it right 100% of the time, but we can always make it right. Abraham could have gone to the altar, but he did not. The consequences of these taking matters into our own hands can be staggering. The impact can last generationally as we've seen. It can, inf- it can impact and affect the lives of countless people and the decisions that you and I make today affect and cascade through generations of time. The little decisions, the big decisions, they're all connected with a rippling effect. They don't just impact you, they impact those around you. They impact your loved ones and your children and your workplace and all of the environments that you are in. If you resonate with Sarai or Abraham or Hagar in any way, yeah, Luke, I, I definitely have shortchanged God. I have sped him up where he goes at his speed and I've taken matters into my own hands. If you resonate with that, or if you resonate with abdicating whatever authority that's been given to you and you just blame, point the finger at everybody else rather than acknowledging the fact that you had something to do with the issue, or you yourself, you just run away. I can't handle the pressure of this. I can't handle the awkwardness, the tension of this. This is just too much for me. If you resonate with any of that, I want to introduce you to the mercy of God. Look at verse 13. She, as in Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That means that if infidelity is your story, God sees you and God loves you. If polygamy is your story, God sees you and God loves you. If abortion is your story, God sees you and God loves you. If divorce is your story, God sees you and God loves you. If rejection, mistreatment, abuse, if any of these things are your story, God sees you and God loves you. There is nothing that can put you outside the spectrum of God's love. You are his dear, sweet daughter and son. There is no amount of chaos my children can make in my home where my love for them evaporates and fades. God's love for you is secure. Instead of running from God, he is the kind of God that you can run to in your pain. This is the only God in a pluralistic world of many options that you can run to out of your pain and out of your tragedy and out of your mistakes and trauma. It is God in Jesus that is inviting us to run to him. Look at Isaiah 55, 7b. It says this, let them turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Praise be to God that we are pardoned and not paroled. D. 
Do you understand the difference? God has pardoned us. He has pardoned us in Jesus. This frees us to run towards Jesus rather than run from Jesus. So in abuse or mistreatment or giving in or blaming or taking control of things that are uniquely God's to control and your life is riddled with shame and regret and guilt, run back to God. Don't run from him. It will just increase the shame and despair. Run to him in Jesus. Run back to God in Jesus. He is waiting for you to accept the invitation to go back to him. Hebrews 4.16 says this. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Don't you love that word? confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Each one of us has had a unique time of need. There is a story, there's a chapter in your life's story where that chapter needed more of God. There was a time where you're like, I just need something or someone to quell the anxiety and the panic and the depression of my life right now. In your time of need, you can walk up to the throne of grace with confidence. There is no waiting room in front of God. You do not have to wait for him to open up his door to you. He is waiting on you to sit down with him. Come to Jesus, friend. Hagar tried to run from God. And God ran ahead of her and waited for her at the very place that she was trying to escape to. She went to a well. She went to a spring. And that is what we do. We go to whatever can give us life. We go to whatever can refresh us, whatever can bring us back to a sense of normalcy. We go back to whatever spring of water we're used to. She went there because she knew it was there. How often do we go back to the very same vomit? How often do we go back to the very same thing over and over again? Even though our lives are full of panic and remorse and regret and shame, we just go back to the same thing, hoping, hoping and clamoring, hoping for that this time, this time will be different. This time, this water will satisfy differently. And the whole time, God ran ahead of you and is waiting for you there. Don't try to run from God. You cannot. You can't. He has ran ahead of you and is waiting for you at the very place you're trying to escape to. Meet him there. Friend, it is time to come to Jesus. It is time to stop running from God. It is time to stop running from Jesus. It is time to come to Jesus. You ever heard of a come to Jesus moment? That's what this is, literally, come to Jesus moment. Some of you have been running from God for so long because of giving in, because of blaming, because of mistreatment and abuse. You can't imagine that God would accept you or love you or embrace you, but yet in Jesus, that is very much what he is like. He is the kind of God who accepts and embraces and includes and brings you close because he loves you. And there's no amount of your life that scares him away from you. You can't scare God off. He's God. 
Run back to Jesus. Verse 14, that is why Hagar, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 86. Think of that. He was 100 when Isaac was born. 100. I believe that it is the brevity of life that motivates us to take matters into our own hands. We think we're just out of time. I'm in my 30s. I should have been married by now. I got to take control of this. I'll marry the first person that will, will let me marry them. That's what we do. It is the brevity of life that motivates us to take matters into our own hands. But in Genesis 25, y'all ready for the plot twist? We learn that Abraham lived to 175 years old. This is before God limited human timelines to 120. Abraham lived to 175. Abraham didn't need to take matters into his own hands. He didn't need to. He would have eventually had Isaac. He could have avoided all of that cosmic, colossal breakdown. He could have, but he didn't. And many of us look back and we are regretful. But this is the forgiveness of God. You see, the forgiveness of God doesn't just forgive. The forgiveness of God forgets. It is us. It is we. We are the ones that don't forget. It is us. It is we. We are the ones that don't forgive ourselves. Why would you hold on to something that God has forgotten about. Think of that. If you have confessed and you've asked God for forgiveness, that means he has forgiven you, which means he has forgotten it. There's no now record of it in his record book, but there is a record of it in your record book. What is stopping you from erasing that record from your story too? Why would you identify with the worst part of your story when God identifies you with the best part of his son's story? Don't you waste a single mental neuron on the worst part of your story when God sees you through the righteousness of his son, Jesus' blood. You are splattered with the blood of Jesus. And God sees you that way. See yourself the way God sees you. Hebrews 6.12 says, we do not want to become lazy. Well, that is true. I don't want any, I don't want to be lazy. I don't want any of our church to be lazy. I don't want any follower of Jesus to be lazy. But to imitate those who through, what's that word, family? Faith and patience. Through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Because you're a daughter, because you're a son, you will inherit. You will inherit from God. There are many beautiful things that God has promised for you, dear friend. You need only to trust and obey. Your job is to follow him with open hands, open hearts, open minds, and allow him to love you. Allow him to help you forget about the worst parts of your story so you can identify with the best parts of his story. Your identity is far beyond your own unique story. Your identity is entangled with Jesus' unique story. 
May you have the courage to see that. So when the enemy tries to shame you for unique parts of your story that didn't go well, it is only the enemy that puts shame on you. It is the Holy Spirit who takes shame off of you. May you walk in freedom and not shame. I'm often amused by the notion that Jesus did not have transportation. You ever thought about this? No Uber, no Lyft, no cars. Occasionally he would ride a donkey and a donkey was slow. And yet everywhere else, Jesus walked. Think of this just for a moment this morning. The speed of a human walk, average speed. I'm a little faster than my wife and kids. I was like, let's go. My wife's like, slow down. (laughs) The average speed is three miles per hour. We serve a three mile per hour God. Think about that for a second. Jesus, God in the flesh, would walk slow enough to facilitate human relationships. And here we are, clamoring and staggering to meet our own desires at our speed and our time. I know. We are all alike. We all want meaningful relationships. There are very few people that have the gift of celibacy. I know some of them. If you have the gift of celibacy, it means that your exclusive relationship is with God. But if you do not have the gift of celibacy and you were called to build a family, it's complex. If you were called to embrace the mechanism of marriage to increase your sanctification, your spiritual formation, it's complex. And the world around us is perfectly designed to tell us that we can take control of those things. Put yourself out there. Show a little more skin. Lead with your portfolio, not your character. This is what the world teaches people. And we wonder why we have the rates of loneliness, divorce, suicide. It's because we're not doing it God's way. The Holy Spirit has invited all of us to resolve the conflict that comes inevitably in human relationships by putting these things back into his hands. It is when we take matters into our own hands is when we create chaos and make a mess. Water goes all over the floor. You can avoid that mess. In Psalm 95, it says that the depths of the earth are in God's hands. The summits of the mountains have been formed by God's hands. If God can withstand the pressures of the natural environment and world around him and us, don't you think he could withstand the pressures of the complexity of your unique human relationships? Put these things back into God's hands, friends. Put all of your longings and your desires back into God's hands. He did not make you with desires put a carrot in front of your nose and ultimately disappoint you. He put that desire there that for when he fulfills it, you would turn back to him and worship him with gratitude and thankfulness. Resist the urge to take matters into your own hands. Every February, we uh, host a, a seminar here called The Significant Marriage, and it's led by an amazing couple, an amazing ministry. 
Uh, you can register for that. It's actually here coming up in the next uh, week and a half. Um, it'll be on the QR code in front of you. It is, it is an expensive, uh, behind an expensive paywall. But uh, if there is anyone in our community that's like, oh my word, my dating relationship, my engaged relationship, my marriage relationship, we got to go get support <laughs> from someone who knows how to coach and how to love and how to lead and how to help. I want to know. Our executive pastor wants to know, please send me an email and say, I, I need to go to this. I, I just, I cannot afford it. We will move heaven and earth to make sure you can go, okay? Finances should not be in the way of your marriage, your engagement, your dating relationship to get the help and support that it needs to thrive. This is where your relationship, marriage, dating, engaged, whatever, is uniquely woven into the tapestry of community and is ultimately supported there. Every marriage that I respect, every dating relationship, every engagement that is successful can be pointed back to one common denominator is that it is shared appropriately with the community of believers by being woven into the fabric of community. You need community. That means there's probably like a couple in the room who's got a decade of marriage behind them or two decades of marriage behind them. You should launch a community to support couples who are engaged or dating. Because the longing is there. The longing is there. I'm so thankful that 12 years ago I was invited into a home where my wife and I, as we were dating, learned to see all of our weaknesses and all of our liabilities. It was community that was the net that caught us in trauma and chaos. Give your relationship to the community of believers so that you can be well supported and caught when things don't go well.